Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have two stories in one in today's Gospel reading. Mark does this sometimes. He sandwiches two stories together. Uh, so we get one, and then to, uh, to just keep our attention, he stops it right at the point where we want to know what's going to happen, and he puts in another one. He sandwiches in another one in the middle of it, keeping us in suspense, and then goes back to finish the story. Of course, we're familiar with these stories, the stories of Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter and the woman who has had an issue of blood for the same amount of years as this little girl has been alive, 12 years there. There there are other connections that are going on between these stories, which is why he sandwiches them together like he does. He does it in other places as well. But there's a theme throughout this. It's about fear and faith. And we find that in both of them. Jesus has uh, made his center of operations, his center of ministry in Capernaum. He's left Nazareth and he's gone and set up house in uh, Capernaum on the shore of the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But right before this passage, he'd been over on the other side of the sea in the area of the Gerasenes and he had rescued the man who had been possessed by a hundred, by a leader of demons cast them out into the swine that had then drowned in the sea and of course everybody in the neighborhood had asked him to leave Um, you know such is the amazing power of Jesus that they are somewhat frightened by this actually but um, the the word spreads and goes around Um, and he comes back to the other side of the lake and he is met of course by a crowd uh, but he's also met by one Jairus, who is the president of the synagogue. There might have been two others there. Uh, Capernaum's not that large, maybe a couple of hundred uh, people, but even so, he has a position of authority within that small uh, village town. <clears throat> And, of course, um, he's probably heard that there's some conflict going on between this itinerant teacher, Rabbi, uh, Jesus, and the authorities, the Jewish religious authorities. So, probably politically correct not to go and be anywhere close to him. But the dilemma is that his little girl is dying. Uh, we hear that he is, says uh, he says this. He knows that she's dying. She's not just sick. It's a sickness unto death. And so he knows that. In that situation, what happens? All political correctness goes out of the window. And he actually humbles himself. This man of authority, faith overcomes fear, 
the fear of what people will say when the synagogue leader comes and asks something of this itinerant preacher and he humbles himself by kneeling down in front of Jesus and doesn't just say it once but he repeats it over and over again my little daughter is dying please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed that word there also means rescued saved it has different meanings to it but he's pleading with Jesus over and over again come lay your hands on her so that she will be healed he knows uh, that touch from this rabbi heals that there is healing in the touch and all other conventions fly out the window and Jesus says yes of course I'll come and so they start off on the journey you can imagine Jairus can't you I mean he's anxious let's hurry up please let's get there she's dying and in the midst of that hurry and walking to the synagogue ruler's house a woman comes up behind Jesus now she's also got to overcome fear Because this is a woman who for 12 long years has had some kind of internal bleeding. Some kind of bleeding that has actually made her ritually unclean. She shouldn't be with anybody else. Let alone close to a synagogue leader or a rabbi. She should not be close to anybody. She has poured every last cent that she has into doctors to try and make herself well. And the opposite has happened. She's become worse. So you can imagine, she doesn't want anybody to see her. This is a small community. Would they not recognize her? So she's probably covered up as much as she can. And the fear of what will be the punishment if they find me. If they find me in this crowd. And yet, faith overcomes fear. If I can just touch his cloak, I'll be made well. And she reaches out and touches him. And two things happen simultaneously. She knows, she knows in her heart and in her mind, in her body, she has been made well. She has been made whole. She's been healed. And at the same time, Jesus stops. Can't you imagine Jairus going, no, 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 no. We've got to go. My daughter. And Jesus stops and turns around and says to the crowd, Who touched me? Don't you love this? It has to be an eyewitness testimony. Because they're going, what do you mean who touched you? There's a crowd around you. Everybody's touching you. He says, no, this is a different touch. This is a touch of faith. Somebody touched me who believed. And power went out of me. So he's looking around the crowd. And now the woman, fearful, what she thought might happen, has happened. What's the punishment going to be? 
She was unclean. And she comes up and does exactly the same as what Jairus did at the beginning. She kneels in front of Jesus and tells her whole story. No punishment. No punishment. Just love. Don't worry, daughter. Don't don't be afraid. Your faith overcame your fear. And your faith has made you well. It's Jesus' power that heals. But her faith, somehow or other, has opened up the full conduit for the flowing of Jesus' healing power so that she is made well. Don't worry. Your faith has made you well go. And at that point, while he's still talking to her and Jairus is distraught, agony about his daughter, the worst news possible comes from his house. She's dead. Don't worry the master anymore. Nothing more can be done. She's dead. And Jesus turns from the woman to Jairus and says, Do not fear. Only believe. And off he goes. And he brings with him just the three, Peter, James and John. And when they get to the house, evidently people have known that this little girl is near death because the mourners are already there. They've already gathered, either the professional mourners or the extended family, because that's what they did back then. They set up the wailing so that those who were going to be so grief-struck, they would not be embarrassed in their grief and in their outpouring of anguish out loud. So that the wailing has already started up. There's a commotion in the house and Jesus comes into that scene and says, why are you behaving this way? She's just asleep, quiet down. She's dead. But that word there can mean death, asleep. They use that term for both death and asleep. But as we see later on in the story, he wants it quiet for now. She's dead. And they go up into the room. The parents grieving. Peter, James and John and Jesus just reaches down. Takes a hand. Time to get up, little one. Arise. Talitha kum. Come on, little child. Get up. And she gets up. Can you imagine the amazement in the room? And we know that because, again, the first-hand witness, they've forgotten about anything except that she was dead and she's alive. And so Jesus has to tell them, get her some food. She'll need some food. Go and get her some food. See, they're both signposts, these stories. They're signposts that new creation has broken in to a fear-infested world because fear is of the enemy, the father of lies. We hear right from the very beginning, from Genesis at the very beginning, in the garden, the lies of the enemy. 
create fear in the man and the woman because they hide and they're fearful of the Lord. They're not, there's nothing in God, but they have believed a lie and now they're fearful. That's, that's our fallen condition. So much comes out of this state of living in fear, in a fear-infested world. But these two stories and so many are signposts that God's way, that God's kingdom, that new creation has come in. Stronger even than the original creation because Jesus will overcome that death. And so what is there to fear? What is there to fear? He's overcome the enemy of us all. There is nothing left to fear because love has entered in and love casts out Fear. John in his first epistle, chapter 4, 18, puts it this way, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. The enemy of our lives, the father of lies, comes in and makes us afraid of punishment. He warps our image of God, the God of unbounded love. Fear has to do with punishment, says John, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Dr. Timothy Jennings, who I've been talking about a bit, I'm reading his book, The God-Shaped Brain, says this about fear. I've done image resonancing of the brain. They've done so much more. There's so much more science and the ability to see what actually happens within the brain. He says this, the amygdala in the brain is like a fire alarm. It releases adrenaline from the adrenal glands to the brain so that when something happens that makes us fearful, What happens is signals go from the amygdala and it sends out these things from the adrenal glands, releases adrenaline out from the brain. We hear a loud noise. Does it sound like a gunshot? Is it a backfiring of a car? What is it? And so our brain is immediately into gear. Adrenaline starts rushing from the amygdala. Our 911 operator, which is the hypothalamus connected to the pituitary gland, sends hormonal signals for the body's emergency response. Stress steroids called glucocorticoids are released. These glucocorticoids start flooding the brain. The hippocampal neurons, which have glucocorticoid receptors, are like the fire chief. He's assessing the situation. Do we need to send more or can we calm it down? Are there enough responders going out to the brain? Do we need more? Have we got enough in place already? Meanwhile, the brain's administrator which is called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, 
Um, so in short, the DLPFC, that's where we reason. It's right here. It's right here behind our forehead. So the chief administrator is of our brain is going, uh, okay, he's evaluating the situation. Our reason is kicking in. Is there need to fear or do we not need to fear? Is it just a car backfiring or is it truly a gunshot? Is there real danger? In which case, if there's real danger, the alarm, the amygdala, starts sending out even more signals and it gets louder and louder and louder. If not, everything starts to calm down immediately. Unfortunately, what happens in some people is that their circuitry has become faulty and the stress hormones keep flowing there's nothing to stop them. The, the stress hormones keep flowing. And if the alarm system keeps firing, the brain is literally damaged. The brain is damaged. It starts shrinking in some places. Healthy thinking is impaired. And because blood and energy are shunted away from our internal organs to our muscles... We get more stress. Our immune system is compromised and it becomes impaired. And the more this cycle goes on, the more the brain shrinks in that area. The bottom line is when fear increases, love, growth, development, healthy thinking all decrease. But the amazing thing is, is that when love increases, out of proportion, all of those things increase. Fear decreases when love increases. Growth, development and healthy thinking all improve, but to a much greater degree. Love actually increases so much more that which fear decreases. But thankfully, here's the amazing thing about God, how God has designed us, that the brain is neuroplastic. That means it can actually heal itself. It can change back again. Just because it's been damaged doesn't mean it needs to stay damaged. It can regrow. He says there's a protein that the brain can produce that acts like fertilizer. When it's unavailable because of fear and stress, neurons begin to wither and die. Brain volume begins to shrink in areas of the brain correlative with disorders like major depression. When it's available, healing takes place and healthy circuits are grown. There's a fertilizer that God has designed for our brains to make our brains literally change. Whatever we pay attention to, that's what grows. So if we fear, that's what grows. If we love and cast out fear, then fear dies and love grows. So what are the ways 
for increasing brain health and nurturing mental stability. He says this, Brain imaging studies have demonstrated that the more time a person spends in communion with the God of love, the more we experience empathy, compassion, and love, and the more our stress hormones decrease. Perfect love casts out fear. Science is, again, just catching up with the Bible. God has said, perfect love casts out fear. It actually happens in your brain. It actually physically happens in your brain. Worshipping the God of love, not a counterfeit, not a wrathful God, not a God who punishes, a God who comes to walk amongst us, to love us. When we focus on the God of love, healing takes place. Physical healing takes place in our brain and our brain is restored being truthful and eliminating falsehood from the mind heals and restores the brain living generously both with time and money heals and restores the brain i told you a couple of weeks ago that was this was a an, an ancillary study another study this didn't come from uh, this particular doctor um that uh when we're generous um, dopamine is increased, the, the thing inside of us which makes us happy. But it also apparently repairs the brain. It's what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth. You see, he's been going around all of these churches as a famine taking place over in Jerusalem. So he's going and he's trying to make unity amongst the churches in all of these different places by the ones who have to provide for the ones who don't have. And he's going to take this money back to uh, Jerusalem with him. Well, evidently, the Corinthians had started this. They'd started to take up a collection for him to take back to Jerusalem. But because there's been some conflict between the two, apparently they've stopped doing that. Um, you know, he's, he's had to take issue with them over some of the things. They're a little bit prideful. Um, they've uh, puffed themselves up in some areas. You know, we're really good. We've got the Holy Spirit. We've got these gifts and, uh, you know, we're better than them. And, you know, you're not a really good teacher anyway. And we really like the ones who are really flowery and, you know. And so there's been this backwards and forwards between him and the Corinthian church. Right before this passage that was read today from his second letter, he's talking about the church in Macedonia. And he says this, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then, by the will of God, also to us. 
And he's saying in this letter to the Corinthians, you see, I'm not commanding you to do this, because if I command you to take up the collection, it has no value. You need to be doing it earnestly. It needs to come up from you, from yourselves, with eagerness, because it's the eagerness with which you give which is the thing that's judged. You see, giving is always a spiritual endeavor. It's not about the bottom line, um, how much, you know, dollars and cents or shekels and mina and all of those things. It's not about that. It's about generosity. It's about trusting the God of love. Because though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. Jesus is the model of that kind of earnest giving. Energetic, eager giving. Though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. So that through his poverty you may become rich. And what happens to the Macedonian church? Amazing. What do we hear? They are under severe threat. Are they under threat of death? Are they likely to be taken out and killed? Severe threat. Fear kind of threat. And they're in extreme poverty. Should we just kind of gather what we can? Keep it to ourselves because we're fearful of what might happen. No. What they do is they, their faith, they're, they're focused on God. And what they do is, is they just abundantly give of themselves out of love. And what happens in the midst of all of that? They're not afraid. On the opposite, what happens is they're overflowing with joy. The situation hasn't changed. There's still a severe threat. They're still in extreme poverty. But what are they experiencing? Overwhelming joy. Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Only believe. Have faith in the God of love. Because unremedied fear truly destroys and love casts out fear. As it says in the book of Proverbs, this is from the message. Don't lose your grip on love and loyalty. Tie them around your neck. Carve their initials on your heart. Earn a reputation for living well in God's eyes and the eyes of the people. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do and everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. Run to God. Run from evil. Your body will glow with health. See, the Bible knows what science is just finding out. Your brain gets healthier. Your body will glow with health. Your very bones will vibrate with life. Honor God with everything you own. Give him the first and the best. And our Lord says to you, 
in whatever situation you find yourself right now, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Only believe in the God of love. Amen.